it's good to see all of you uh, this morning. Um, this morning, we are going to be continuing in our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. So for those of you that may be new with us or haven't maybe joined us in a while, uh, Nick is going through a ser- sermon series through the book of Acts. And then uh, I'm going through a sermon series through the book of Nehemiah, probably once a month or so is when I'm preaching. So hopefully this shift back and forth won't be too much of a dissonance for you. Uh, but so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, so if you find the book of Psalms, you can go back a little bit, and then you'll find uh, Nehemiah. So, uh, Nehemiah, this sermon series that we're going through, I've subtitled it, uh, Rebuilding a City and People for God. That if the overall theme of Nehemiah is uh, Nehemiah's uh, desire to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the city of God, and to restore God's people. And as I shared uh, back in January when I preached uh, on chapter one, I think my hope is that as we go through the book of Nehemiah, as we go through this series through Nehemiah, uh, that we would have this desire and this understanding of seeing how God God works through history, but also how God works through people, right? And so uh, this morning's sermon uh, is titled Mission, okay? And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. I'll read the Word of God, and I'll pray, and we'll get going. Sound good? All right. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that is the king, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? We can all connect with that, right? (laughs) This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given uh, me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word uh, not, doesn't just tell us stories, God, uh, but it tells us uh, events of how you have worked uh, through the lives of different individuals, God. And we thank you, Lord, that your word uh, aren't just facts, Lord, uh, but they're meant, God, for our edification, our growth, Lord, and knowing you more. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes to see you more clearly open our ears to hear you, Uh, open our hearts, God, uh, that we might know you more. And so, Father, I ask, God, that uh, your spirit would be present here and working through us, God, working through me as uh, we listen, uh, as we read, as we reflect on your word. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And so if you weren't with us uh, for the opening chapter of Nehemiah 1, uh, if you just want to take a quick look through Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, we're introduced to Nehemiah, who uh, is a cupbearer to the king. And what we saw uh, about a month ago in Nehemiah chapter 1 was Nehemiah's conviction for God's purposes uh, and Nehemiah's conviction to pray. Right. Uh, Nehemiah is just kind of doing, going about his daily work, right? And news is brought uh, from his home country about uh, the situation, the condition of uh, the walls of Jerusalem and the people there, as we see in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses uh, 2, 3, and 4. And he hears terrible news, that the walls are in ruin, and that the people of God are in shame. And Nehemiah's response, as we saw in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, is instead of jumping to solve the problem, Uh, his first response is prayer, right? And really chapter one, verses four, all the way to the end of chapter one is about prayer. And in that we see Nehemiah's conviction to pray, but also in his prayer, it reveals what he believes, truly believes about God. 
I shared with you last month that oftentimes our prayers, what we pray about, what we don't pray about, how we pray, reveals a lot about who we believe God to be. Right? In Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah is firmly convinced right, that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, right? and that God is, uh, is a God who keeps his promises, but that God is also a holy God that we ought to come before in humility and confession. Right? And so we see even before what well, we're going to read later on in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, that everything starts with prayer. Right? Everything starts with prayer. And that's Nehemiah chapter 1. Right? But then we move into Nehemiah chapter 2. And actually, with this passage that we just read, there's really not much action going on. If you read it carefully, all it is is really just a conversation between a king and his servant. Right? Uh, really a discussion. But yet, as we look into this morning's passage, we're going to see there's lots of implication and application for us today. Right? And what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, is really that we see Nehemiah's sense of mission. When I say mission, not like missions and evangelism, okay? but mission broadly, kind of like this purpose or this uh, goal that he has in mind. That Nehemiah's mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem right, uh, really comes out of his conviction right, that we saw in chapter 1. And we see in this chapter here that Nehemiah's mission is birthed out of conviction and it actually starts to happen, okay, through prayer, planning, and action, okay, all under God's sovereignty. That's kind of the main idea of this morning's passage, okay. And so there's kind of four things that we can see in this morning's passage. I'll give them to you and we'll come back to it. The first thing is we see that Nehemiah prays in this chapter, last chapter, and he continues to pray, Second thing we see is that Nehemiah takes prayerful risks. He takes prayerful risks. Thirdly, we see Nehemiah prayerfully plans. Okay, he makes plans. And lastly, Nehemiah ultimately acknowledges that all this is God's work. That all this is God's work. So let's look at the first point here. We see uh, in this passage that Nehemiah, as he did pray in chapter 1, he continues to pray in chapter 2. Right? Uh, we're given the time frame here in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, not Nisan, okay, <laughs> but Nisan, okay? And that might not mean anything to you, but in chapter 1, it says, in the month of Chislev, okay? And so, uh, basically, it's about four months that have passed since chapter 1, when, Nehemiah is brought to his when it's brought to Nehemiah's attention that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruin, right? When he's convicted, when he's heartbroken, when he's grief-struck. Right? That four months have passed since Nehemiah first broke down in tears and prayer. Four months have passed since Nehemiah fasted right, in response to asking God, what do I do? Right? And what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that as things start to move, okay, he doesn't stop praying. He doesn't just start with prayer and that's it. But what we see here in chapter 2, if you look at verse 4 carefully, Right, as he's engaged in this conversation with the king, when the king notices something's not quite right with Nehemiah, and the king says, you know, what do you want it, what, what are you asking for? What's going on? Notice in chapter 2, verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? What does Nehemiah do? How does he respond? What does it say there? It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and then he says something to the king. Right? You notice that Nehemiah doesn't respond right away to the king, but as the king is asking him this question, what do you want? Right? Nehemiah's natural inclination is to what? To pray. Right? The Bible doesn't give us an account of exactly what he prayed. Right? It just says that he prayed to the God of heaven. Right? Perhaps he prayed for boldness, maybe courage, maybe wisdom. Lord, I don't, what should I say? Right? But I think in some ways it's not very... Um, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us what he prayed. It just tells us what? That he prayed. Right? Not what Nehemiah prayed, but that he prayed. Uh, probably it wasn't a long prayer, right? I mean, I can't imagine the king saying, what do you want? And he's like, hold on, time out. You know, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, king, right? But it's probably one of those times where, you know, the king's asking him a question. What do you want? And he's in his mind, Lord, help me. And then responds. Right? And so it's interesting, in chapter 1, we see this long, drawn-out prayer that Nehemiah prays, right? where we're given the account of the exact words he prays. But here in chapter 2, he prays, but it's almost like a short sniper prayer. Right? Boom, boom. Right? And what we see is that Nehemiah prays in chapter 1, and prayer continues to be a part of the work that he is going to do. 
right? And um, Dave Hansen wrote this book called Long Wandering Prayer. And he has a great quote, and he says, how can short prayer solve the problem of long worry? It took a long time for anxiety to grip our guts. Only long prayer can release that power, right? And what he's saying is that that when he says long prayer, it isn't just that we need to pray a long prayer, but rather a long enduring prayer, right? You pray once, you pray again, you pray again. That it's not just the length of an individual prayer, but how long uh, over a period of time we pray as well, right? And that's one of the things we see throughout scripture, right? Praying without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? Romans 12.12, it says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, right? Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, Right? Uh, Nick preached a, a, an encouraging and challenging sermon to kick, off, kick us off this year in our week of prayer on that passage, Colossians 4.2, in prayer. Right? Uh, Jesus tells a parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 right? about this, uh, this, this, this picture of what does it mean to persevere and be constant in seeking the Lord. All right? And even before we continue, I just want to pause here this morning. Uh, for us to think about, you know, uh, this year we kicked off the year as we do every year with a week of prayer, right? So it's been about a month now, right? It probably feels like a lot long, long, long ago, right? But what are some things that maybe you start off, started off the new year being very passionate, fervently about, like saying, I want to pray about these things. I want to commit to praying these things. And now it's been about a month, right? Um, perhaps what are some things that you've stopped praying about, um, but perhaps need to continue in prayer? Right. How are we doing in the area of prayer, both as individuals, uh, but also corporately together as a church? Right. And what we see is we need regular reminders to persevere in prayer because it's easy to forget. Right. And it's easy to give up. Right. Uh, one of my favorite books on prayer by Paul Miller is titled A Praying Life. Uh, and he writes, we forget that helplessness is how the Christian life works. Helplessness is how the Christian life works. Strong Christians do pray more, but they pray more because they realize how weak they are. Weakness is a channel that allows them to access God's grace. Right? Just think about that for a moment. Right? We pray because we realize how weak we are. But the stronger the Christian is, the more they pray. Right? And it's interesting to think about how the Christian life even begins. Right? That the Christian life, this Christian journey, oftentimes begins with a sort of prayer. Right? Whether you prayed the quote-unquote sinner's prayer, right? or some sort of prayer acknowledging God and your need for him, right? or your confession of sin, right? saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. Right? It's interesting that the Christian life begins in many ways with what? With prayer. But it doesn't just begin with prayer it continues with prayer, right? And that's kind of what we see here with Nehemiah. And we're gonna see Nehemiah is gonna constantly, almost every chapter, Nehemiah is gonna come back to pray, even as he is working and as he's trying to make his plans come to fruition, right? And so Nehemiah prays and he continues to pray, right? As he has this conviction in chapter one, as he's praying about what should he do, what can he do, right? We're gonna see that this conviction gives uh, birth to a clear mission and action, and all this is through kind of the furnace of prayer, right? So the first point we see is Nehemiah prays and he continues to pray. Uh, the second point we see, and we're going to spend some more time in this morning, is we see also Nehemiah takes prayerful risks. He takes steps of faith. He takes steps of risk. That in the face of fear, true convictions uh, stay and remain, don't they? Right? They don't run away or change, right? Think about when you're really convicted of something, you know this is true. Right? Or you're, you firmly believe X, Y, and Z. Right? That this is the best boba place. This is the best burrito place. Right? It doesn't matter what people say. You are firm in your convictions. Right? right? And we see that with Nehemiah. That as Nehemiah goes about his daily duties as a cupbearer, we, we see at the end of chapter 1, it says, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Right? An unexpected opportunity uh, arises. Right? Uh, for those of you that may not be familiar with, the cupbearer was a trusted uh, role to the king and oftentimes a close role to the king, not just physically you're constantly by the king. Right? Um, the part of the duty of the cupbearer was, in essence, to guard uh, the king's cup and food from poison. 
right? And so, uh, you know, back then, there was always people trying to take down a king and be king, right? And so the cupbearer oftentimes was basically like the security guard in some ways of the king, right? And if necessary, the, 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 the cupbearer would drink the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned and then give it to the king, right? Or take a bite of the food and give it to the king, Right? And oftentimes, in some instances, the, the cupbearers were even kind of considered informal like advisors or consultants to the king because they were constantly around the king. You know? So the king would sometimes say, well, what do you think about this? Because right? they would be privy to a lot of actually information, too. Because right? I don't know how many times the kings ate, but you can guess they ate often. Right? First breakfast, second breakfast, first lunch, second lunch. Right? So... Uh, and what we see is that as Nehemiah is going about his role as the cupbearer, Right, uh, this burden that he carries as he thinks about the people of God, the the city of Jerusalem. Right, it, it kind of weighs on him. Right, it's been four months, and it doesn't go away. Right, uh, this concern, this grief, uh, this care, his thoughts, his feelings about what's going on over a thousand miles away weighs on him. Right, and uh, and eventually, it kind of comes out. Right? Uh, he can't, in some ways, hide it from the king. That's what we see here. It says, in, uh, you know, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me in verse 2, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? Right? The king knows, I know you're healthy. What's going on? Right? And I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced this. You know, you uh, interact with people on a daily basis, whether family, friends, coworker, classmates, right? And, uh, you know, as you get to know people, you can just kind of tell how they're feeling, how they are, just by looking at their face. Right. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up, uh, you know, many times I didn't need to hear my dad say anything. And I could tell just by the look on his face if he was pleased with what I was doing or if he was upset. Right. I'm sure we all know the look from our parents. Right. They just, you know, give you the look. Right. And as parents. Right. We all give our kids the look. Right. They're being rowdy. Just give them the look. You don't need to say anything. You can convey. Right. Just through your face. Right. And what we see here is that Nehemiah, he's actually trying to hide his grief and his sadness. And we'll get to that in a second as to why. But somehow the king, being obviously very observant, right? He's not a, just a king for no reason, right? He sees something's going on with Nehemiah and he asks, right? What, what's going on, right? And how does Nehemiah respond? Well, let's take a look in verse uh, 3 or, yeah, verse 2. It says, then I was very much afraid. Right. Why is Nehemiah afraid? Right. Two reasons. One, you have to understand kind of the context here is, in many ways, Nehemiah is afraid of what the king may do and what the king may say to him. Right. Um, even though he may be a close advisor to the king, this isn't a pure relationship. The king is still the king, and at the end of the day, he's still a servant. Right. And so he has to tread carefully, right? There's no court where Nehemiah can appeal to. If the king is upset with him, he can't go to HR and say, hey, you know, my manager said this and this, right? Uh, can you help me resolve this situation? No, the king is the HR department. He is the judge. He is the jury, right? And Nehemiah understands that whatever he's about to say, right, uh, his life is in the hands of the king, right? You also have to understand as I mentioned before, uh, that during this time, you know, uh, kingdoms were coming and going, right? Kings were rising and falling, right? And so for the king, think about this. One of his close advisors, someone that he sees, seems kind of disturbed. What are you thinking as a king? Something must be going on, right? Which is why we see that Nehemiah responds with fear, but also notice the first words that come out of his mouth. He says, I said to the king, What? Let the king live forever. And so Nehemiah is response of fear, but he's also reassuring the king of his loyalty to the king. Right? Because the king may be thinking, you know, does Nehemiah know about some plot to overthrow me? Perhaps Nehemiah is even part of this plot. All right? And so he reassures the king of his loyalty to him. Right? And so he affirms his loyalty. Right. Not only that, what we're going to see, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra chapter 4, verses 17 to 23. Uh, just go back one book. Ezra chapter 4, uh, verses 17 to 23. What we see, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually connected. What we see actually is years ago, uh, 
the people were actually rebuilding uh, the city of Jerusalem, okay? But then King Artaxerxes, the same king that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to, actually ordered the rebuilding of the walls, rebuilding of the city to stop. What happened was there are other people that were saying, you know, those, those, those people of God, those Jewish people, once they rebuild the city, uh, they're going to revolt against you, right? Uh, they're not going to want to be under your reign and rule. They're going to cause all sorts of trouble. And so these other people wrote a letter to the king saying, this is what's going on. You need to cease, you need to issue a cease and desist. And so Nehemiah knows this, right? Because what he's about to do is ask the king, can we rebuild the walls? Basically saying, uh, can you backtrack on your orders from years ago? Right, so all of this is kind of playing in this situation as Nehemiah is fearful, okay? And as he says, let the king live forever, right? But not only that, think about this for a moment. Uh, where is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is in uh, the Susa, the citadel, which was like the winter palace of the king, okay? And where is Jerusalem? It's about a thousand miles away. Right, so just to put it kind of as a point of reference, it'd be like from San Jose to Albuquerque, New Mexico, or San Jose to Vancouver, not Washington, but uh, British Columbia, okay? And we know that the condition of the city is torn down. It's not a very good, happy place to be, right? And so think about this for a moment, that Nehemiah now, he is taking a big risk in not only bringing up this matter, but he himself is risking his life to go, all right? Think about this for a moment. He is risking, right, uh, not only sharing his heart about what he's thinking, but he's also risking his situation, his circumstances to go, all right? Nehemiah takes a prayerful risk by asking the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and he's risking, actually, all the stability and security and comfort that he has as a cupbearer to go himself, right? And not only that, when we look at what he's asking here in these verses, he's asking the king, one, if he can take an extended leave of absence from his job, right? And he's also asking the king if he can kind of spend time doing something that doesn't even serve the king or further the king's interests. And then he's asking the king, uh, can you kind of foot the bill for this too? Right, I mean, just imagine if you, you know, for those of you that are working, you're, you go to your manager, you say, you know, uh, I'd like to take some extended time off. Um, they're like, okay, uh, yeah, sure, you know, but can I still get paid? Okay, and uh, what are you going to be doing? Well, I'm going to be helping this other startup get going. You're like, what? <laughs> right, and not only that, but uh, can you uh, help seed some of the money for this startup so that I can help out? Right, <laughs> kind of a crazy thought, right? That's a huge ask, but yet we see Nehemiah asking the king. It's a tremendous risk, and Nehemiah takes a very prayerful risk, uh, not only in asking, but in sharing and putting himself uh, out there as well. Right? And I think it's really interesting that when we think about, you know, I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on this passage, when it comes to risk, you know, am I more risk-averse or am I risk-taker? Right? Uh, but more importantly, think about when it comes to following God and living out our faith, right? Think about that. Are we more risk averse or are we risk takers, right? Or perhaps are there areas of maybe laziness or comfort and control that we do acknowledge uh, in, you know, as we're following God, right? I read this quote somewhere. I actually don't know who said it or wrote it, uh, but it's the idea is basically the quote says something along the lines of, you know, the average person uh, doesn't want to be free. They want to be safe, right? The average person doesn't want to be free. They want to be safe, right? Think about that for a moment of how much of what you and I do in the day-to-day -day is driven by our pursuit to be what? To be safe, to have stability, to have security, right? To be in a place of comfort, right? Um, you know, how much of what drives us as people in the United States, uh, living specifically in the Bay Area, right? Day-to-day -day decisions for ourselves, for our families, right? Is driven by some of these things, right? Uh, and it's one of the things for me personally, I wrestle with a lot. Right, as a Christian, you know, submitting my life to Jesus, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord, that's one of those challenges that I often think about and pray about. 
you know, am I pursuing safety and familiarity and comfort, right? Or am I walking in faith by not just taking reckless risks, right? But prayerful risks. Uh, one of my favorite books, not a Christian book, uh, is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Have any of you guys ever read this? It's a fascinating book. He wrote it in 1985, not a Christian book, but basically wrote commenting on technology and society. And what he wrote in 1985 was very prophetic. If you read that book today, you'd be like, wow, he's like speaking about today, like, you know, 40 years later, okay? But in his book, he's basically contrasting um, uh, George Orwell's 1984 book and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, okay? Both of these books are kind of... Uh, fiction stories about, oh, what society could become, right? Or how the government may control us in 1984, right? Or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And in Neil Postman's uh, forward to Amusing Ourselves to Death, he writes this. It's a bit of a long quote, but just follow along with me. He says, contrary to common belief, um, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell do not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, big brother, right, controlling us. But in Huxley vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore their technologies that undo their capacities to think. He wrote this in 1985. Okay. What Oral feared, right, were those who would ban books. Okay, big brother's gonna, you know, no more reading. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who would want it to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Okay, big brother, government, whatever higher power is going to hide the truth from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumblebuppy. I have no idea what that means, but I think we generally get an idea of what he's talking about here. Uh, in 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain, so they'd be punished, right? In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting not pain, but pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And so his whole book is talking, right? The title is Amusing Ourselves to Death, right? Wrote this in 1985, right? Everything is about the pursuit of amusement, entertainment, pleasure, comfort, right? And this pursuit of security, comfort, and pleasure, I think is one of those idols or compasses, which oftentimes if we're, honest with ourselves, guides us and leads us more than anything else. Even subconsciously, right? We're not always aware of that, right? But here what we see in Nehemiah, right, is he goes against that current, right? He's willing to risk, uh, right? He's willing to risk, and he's willing to risk himself and his life, all right? Uh, John Piper has an excellent short book. I know I'm quoting a lot of books. I like to read. So uh, Risk is Right. It's one of my favorite books. It's a really short book. So even if you're not a reader, it's well worth reading. And he, he defines it as risk as this. Risk is defined as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Right? That makes sense. If you take a risk, you can lose money, you can lose face, you can lose your health or even your life. And what's worse is if you take a risk, you may endanger other people, not just yourself, right? For those of us that are parents or we have family, other people depending on us, we totally understand that. And see, so he says, will a, will a wise and loving person then ever take a risk? Is it wise to expose yourself to loss? Is it loving to potentially endanger others? And is losing life the same as wasting it? Right? And the premise of the whole book is really addressing this idea of risk. And what he's saying is that actually we cannot avoid risks, right? even if we want to. He confronts this myth of safety and security. That in this pursuit of avoiding risk, we are actually wasting our lives. And in many ways, risking our lives. Right? And what we see here is Nehemiah again goes against this current of comfort. And he steps out in risk. Right? But yet, if we think about it from a Christian perspective, the most secure, comfortable, and stable place you can be is where? With the Lord. Right? 
And we see here in this whole exchange that Nehemiah is having with this king, right? He's taking big steps of risks here. You see that? It's not foolish risks, but prayerful risks, right? He's been praying about this. He's been fasting. And, and as this opportunity presents where the king says, what's going on, right? Why are you so sad? He takes that risk, right? And not just that, but if you look at these conversation here, he actually takes risk after risk after risk. Because look at what happens. The king says, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick, right? And he responds in verse 3. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire, right? So he, he takes the risk by sharing what's going on, right, his concerns. And you'll see in verse 4, the king then said to me, what are you requesting? Oh, boy. <laughs> Another risk, right? He prays and he says to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, in verse five, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may, may rebuild it. Okay, good. And then the king said to me, how long will you be gone? When will you return? Okay, here in this verse six, it doesn't tell us the date, okay, or how long, but we know later in, I think, chapter five, that he's actually gonna be gone about 12 years. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if that's originally what he negotiated with the king, but it ends up being 12 years and the king allows him this, okay? And you would think, okay, great. Nehemiah's gone a lot already, okay? You know, cash out your chips, okay? Don't, 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 don't keep on playing. But then he says in verse seven, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Basically, he's asking letters from the king right, to grant him favor for safe passage through certain regions. And in verse 8, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the, uh, gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So <laughs> he's asking quite a lot. It's a big risk, right? At any point, the king could say no, and not just no, but at any point, the king could say, what are you doing? What are you asking for? Get this cupbearer out of here, right? But yet we see Nehemiah not just praying and continuing to pray, but he takes prayerful risks, right? And I want us to pause here and think about, you know, what are some areas uh, perhaps in your own life or maybe uh, in your family where God is calling you to take some steps of faith, to take some steps that may feel like risky steps. Um, you know, but we're instead, you know, we've kind of just pushed it off, right? We, that, that thought comes up, we go, no, 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 no. Now it's not the right time. No, 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 well, what about all these other things and implications? No, 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 right? But perhaps there's some areas in your life where God is calling you to take those steps of faith, to take those steps of risks, right? You know, one of the, 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 the three kind of core values for us as a church are what? Faith, community, and mission, all right? And even when we think about kind of those three categories or three uh, core values, right? What does it look like for us to take steps of risks in our faith, right? Maybe for some of us, it maybe is taking that step of just trusting in the Lord for the first time. You know, we've heard about God, we've been exposed to the gospel, but we're just kind of ah, close to the edge, but don't, not willing to take that step. And maybe that step of faith, that, that risk that God is asking you to take is to step into his arms and to trust him with your life, All right? Maybe for those, others, others of us, uh, we've never been baptized. You know, like, well, yeah, you know, I'll be a Christian, just kind of do it quietly, but you know, to, to get dunked in water and make a public spectacle of it, that, that seems kind of strange, or I don't know if I want that sort of exposure. Right? Maybe that's that step of risk or faith that the Lord is leading you to take. Right? When we think about community, right? maybe it's plugging into a home group. You know, maybe it's taking that risk and being vulnerable and open with others. Maybe you've been a part of a home group, but when it comes to sharing and prayer, because you're like, oh, you know, just pray for my work, okay? You know, we keep it very surface level, but maybe it's that step of being willing to risk sharing who you really are and what you're struggling with. Right. Maybe for some of us, you know, uh, we've been talking about membership and our membership classes are starting up soon. Maybe you've been a part of this church for a while, but you've never committed as a member. Right. And perhaps it's taking that step of faith and risk. You know, like this isn't the perfect church, but I'm willing to be all in and commit as a member. Right. Maybe that's that. 
When it comes to mission, thinking about, you know, serving and using our gifts, you know, you're like, well, you know, maybe I'd be willing to help out in this year, but I don't know, maybe I'm not that good, and I'm not sure how will people respond, will I do a good job or not? Maybe it's that step that, that God is taking, just to step out and to serve and use your gifts, right? Maybe when it comes to evangelism, right, prayer walks, you know, uh, I know, um, and just thinking about, you know, taking those things out where maybe we're like, ah, that seems kind of awkward and weird and what if people look at me funny and how are people gonna respond? Maybe that's that step of faith or risk that the Lord is leading you to, right? Whatever it is, okay, consider and think about what is God saying to you? What are the areas perhaps where he's calling you to take a prayerful risk uh, in him and for him? And we see here, Nehemiah prays and he takes this risk, right? But you'll notice that he doesn't just take a blind risk, he takes a prayerful risk and he prayerfully plans. You notice here, as we look at this exchange, this is our third point, he prayerfully plans. When we look at this exchange in verses five through eight, as the king comes back to Nehemiah and asks him questions, right? Like, oh, well, what do you need? What do you want? Notice uh, Nehemiah doesn't just say, oh, hold on, let me get back to you. Right, he says, or he doesn't say, oh, king, that's a great question. I never thought about it, right? But he basically provides like a clear business plan of sorts to the king, right? Uh, Nehemiah, in, in verses five through eight, he gives a clear who, like who's gonna be involved in this? He says, send me, all right? He talks about when, right? How long is this gonna take? Uh, he, you know, he gives a what, how, I need these resources, Right? He requests the royal letters for safe passage and raw materials. Well, we see that Nehemiah was able to answer all the king's questions and concerns, that Nehemiah had a plan he had clearly, not just thought through, but prayed through, right? And clearly and compelling presented it to the king, right? Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes, I'm sure most of us don't think this way, but sometimes the thought may come that, you know, well, what it really means to trust God and to follow God and to risk for God is just kind of blindly go for it, right? Just, I don't know, the Lord will lead me. Holy Spirit, where are you leading me here? Take a step here. Holy Spirit, where are you leading me here? Take a step there, right? And the Lord does do that, okay? But yet, what we also see throughout scripture is that God's people, right, are led by the Spirit, but yet they also prepare and they also plan. That these two things are not either or, but both and, right? And depending on where you are, we may lean towards one or the other, right? So some of us, we are planners. We like to know the five-year plan and the one-year plan. So all we do is plan, 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 and we don't lean on the Holy Spirit and trust God to lead us and guide us. Others of us, perhaps, all right, well, well, you know, God's in control. He'll take care of it. So I don't know. Maybe we'll do this and maybe we'll do that. And oh, this, maybe that, and maybe this, right? But we see throughout scripture and we even see, for example, in the life of Paul, the apostle Paul, who obviously was very much led by the spirit, right? And entrusted God, uh, his life to God was a person who strategized and actually made plans, all right, just as a quick example, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Uh, Romans is a, uh, a wonderful, powerful book on uh, who God is and what it means to be saved and who Jesus is. And oftentimes, you know, it's, uh, we neglect the end of the book of Romans because at the end of Romans 15, in Romans 15, it's just kind of like all these random greetings, right? You know, it's like, oh, how does that, what's so important about that? But if you look at Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look at 22 to 29. We know that uh, Paul is uh, traveling throughout, uh, you know, spreading the gospel, going on mission. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 22 to 29, I'm just going to read this aloud, okay? Uh, he says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. He's talking about to the Christians in Rome. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm coming to Jerusalem, bring aid to the saints. Uh, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they're pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in a material blessing. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I go, okay, so what's the point of that? Well, what you see here is actually 
Paul had a plan. Do you see that? He had a travel itinerary. On one hand, he was led by his spirit, but he also said, you know, I'm going to plan, right, to visit you as I'm going here, here. I'm going to swing by and visit you, right? And what we see here, and you'll see throughout the book of Acts, too, is that actually Paul has plans. Sometimes they get altered by the Holy Spirit. Other times, they come to fruition just like he planned, right? And what I'm trying to highlight here is Nehemiah uh, prayerfully took risks and, you know, wanted to follow God and, not but, and he planned, right? And he planned, right? Uh, I'm reminded of James chapter 5. Uh, if you turn with me to James chapter 5. James is near the end of the Bible. Uh, go by, you find Hebrews, and it'll be right next to Hebrews, or after Hebrews. Uh, James chapter 5. I'm sorry, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, uh, this is kind of the famous passage on planning or making plans. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15, or 16. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, right? And what we see here in this passage is uh, James is not saying that we should not make plans, but rather as we make our plans, we're submitting them to the Lord, right? Do you see that here, right? And so all this is just a highlight to say, okay, that in the Christian life, we are led by God and led by the Spirit, guided by his word, but that, that does not preclude planning, and we see that here with Nehemiah, that he's, as the king says, well, what do you want? What do you want to do? He lays out this plan. He's prayerfully prayed through it, and he presents it to the king, all right? And we think about maybe for some of us, you know, maybe there are certain things that we have convictions of, things that, you know, we feel like God is leading us to do, but we just kind of are just sitting on it and hoping that somehow it will hatch on its own. But the Lord is saying, you know what? You got to make some plans here. Right, you gotta maybe think through this, talk to people about it, read up on this, or, or you know, bring it up and discuss it, right? Versus just somehow hoping that the Lord will just kind of go, boom, here it is, right? He may do that, but he may not, and maybe he's waiting on you to prayerfully plan through whatever it is that uh, the burdens and the convictions that he has placed in your heart, right? And so we see Nehemiah prays. He takes risks, right, and he plans, right? And lastly, what we see, though, in verse 10, right? What does it say in verse 10? Or sorry, not verse 10, uh, verse uh, 8 and 9. Uh, he says, in a letter to Asaph, right, and at the end he says, and the king granted me what I asked for what? The good hand of my God was upon me, Right? that Nehemiah readily recognizes that this favorable response of the king to his requests, right, are not just because Nehemiah prayed, which he did. It's not just because Nehemiah took a risk, right, which he did. And it's not just because he planned, but ultimately what? It was God's hand at work. Do you see that here? That Nehemiah did all this stuff, right, but yet he acknowledges and recognizes that it was God's hand at work, right? And specifically, we see two aspects of Nehemiah's acknowledgement here. One is uh, he acknowledges God's sovereignty, right? Uh, God's sovereignty, that God is in control, but not only that, but that God is working through others, that God is working through the king. You notice here it says, and the king granted me what I asked, right? So he acknowledges this is the king giving to me what I asked, for the God, hand, good hand of God was upon me, right? So he acknowledges that it's the king, but yet it's what? God. And so he acknowledges God's sovereignty, God's work through others, right? He simultaneously acknowledges the king granted me what I asked, I, what I did, but yet he affirms it was God, right? Uh, reminds me of Philippians 2, 12 to 13, where the apostle Paul, Paul writes, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Okay? He's talking about sanctification, right? Uh, how do you grow in your faith? Or you've got to work that out with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
right? When we think about the Christian life, on one hand, it is us, you know, we, we do the spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible, of going to church, and we do all these things, right? But yet it's also God at work in us and through us, right? That it's both and, not either or, okay? And so we see that Nehemiah acknowledging God's sovereignty, God's work through others. Uh, he also acknowledges God's grace, right? God's goodness, Notice here he says, for the good hand of my God was upon me, right? He acknowledges that God's answer to his prayer wasn't something that he necessarily deserved, right? But that it was God's unmerited favor to him and that God is good, all right? The picture is not a reluctant, cruel father who's just like, fine, if that's really what we want here, you can take it, right? But rather a heavenly father who while sovereign is also gracious and good, uh, one of my, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a Christian, or is a Christian. And one of his uh, favorite Bible verses uh, was, uh, or is Psalm 90, verse 17. Um, it says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Um, some of you, I've shared this before, you know, my dad grew up in poverty and had to, you know, work and claw his way, you know, as, as the oldest of five um, you know, he came to the States, grew up a poor farmer, um, you know, to provide not only for us as a family, but also for his parents and his siblings too, right? Uh, my dad is one of the hardest working people I've ever known and probably will ever know. Like his work ethic is legendary. Like we used to joke, like my dad doesn't need sleep, right? And, you know, he would always have like, or he always has like bags underneath his eyes. I don't know if I shared this before, but like uh, normally he has like three or four bags underneath his eyes. It's like bags upon upon bags, okay? And so whenever like he would get like a good night's rest, you're like, oh, daddy only has three bags underneath his eyes, <laughs> right? And so that's just, you know, kind of, you know, kind of his work ethic and, and all that. And, but, you know, and, and by the grace of God, you know, is in being able to provide and, you know, provide obviously for my sister and I and our family and all these things. But yet if you ask him, okay, if you ask him, you know, uh, he will be the first to acknowledge uh, that all the quote unquote success and all the, you know, the, the things that he's been able to accomplish. Um, he will say, yes, I worked hard, but he'll be the first to say it was God's favor and God's work in my life. Wow. Right. And so he said, yes, you know, I worked hard. You know, I, I paid my way through college. I, you know, worked and provided for my family, you know, all these things. Right. You know, all four bags on each underneath. I kind of confirmed that. But yet he will be the first to acknowledge, you know, it, yes, I worked, but it was God at work, right? And that's why that's his uh, favorite Bible verse, right? Just asking God to bless and knowing that is the favor of God upon us that, you know, allows us to see fruit or whatever it is that we're praying for, right? And what we see here in this passage then is, you know, for all that Nehemiah does, he prays, he takes risks, he plans, right? But yet underneath all that, right, or above all that, right, he recognizes, you know what, this is God's work. This is God at work, right? And, you know, I want us to think about just, you know, as you think about all the things that you do and kind of where you are in life and, and maybe the things that you are hope to accomplish, right? Um, yes, we do our part. We need to pray. We need to take risks. We need to plan, right? But where have you, how have you seen God's hand at work in your life? You know, because I think it can be easy. You know, when we work hard, it can be easy to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm where I am because of my own efforts, right? We love those stories, right? The person that worked hard and it's because of all their effort and all their work. On one hand, yes, but also God, right? Um, how have you seen God's hand at work uh, in your own life? Uh, how have you seen God's hand at work in and through the life of us as a church here too, Right? And so, um, yeah, you know, just something for us to think about as we think about Nehemiah and his life, right? But one of the things I want us to close in is this, you know, as we think about the life of Nehemiah, uh, who he is, you know, Nehemiah was in a position of comfort, as I mentioned earlier, a position of security, and in some ways in a position of power, yet he chose, what, to leave, Right? His place, he chose to leave the palace. He chose to leave his position for the purposes of God. Right? Ultimately, to what? To help rebuild the city, to help restore the people. Right? And as I was reflecting on this, I was like, this is such a beautiful picture. 
of who? Of Jesus. That Jesus being God himself, leaving heaven, the comforts, if you will, (laughs) of heaven, to come into this world, becoming fully human, to be with us, as we talked about during Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, right? To ultimately die on the cross for our sins, yours and mine, to take on the guilt, the shame, the burden, and the eternal consequences of our sins, right, through his death and resurrection, right, to satisfy the the holy wrath of God, right, so that what? He could rebuild us, restore us, bring us back to him, right, as God created us as we were meant to be, right? Isn't that amazing? And this picture of Nehemiah and all that he does, right, he sees the sovereignty of God, but it's also in some ways a little foreshadow, right, or a little picture, a point uh, to who Christ is. And as we close this morning, uh, you know, I think I talked about a lot here, but I want us just to pause and maybe spend a, a moment or two in silence and just I've talked a lot. I want you to hear from the Lord. And so maybe just take a moment of quiet reflection. And just as you pray and as you reflect on what we've read and what you've heard, um, to allow God to continue to speak and to work in your heart. And then I'll close this after a minute or two. God, we thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that you would leave uh, the comforts of heaven uh, to restore us back to you. Lord, thank you for uh, the example of Nehemiah, Lord, of him taking steps of faith and risk and prayer and planning. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray for of friends and visitors here. Lord, that you would help us, God, uh, to take those next steps of faith. Lord, help us not to walk in uh, fear or timidity, but help us to walk in faith and prayer, God. Continue to work in our lives, um, both individually and in the life of this church. Lord, that we would continue to grow in faith and community and mission. Lord, all fueled and powered by the gospel. Lord, knowing that we do these things, Lord, not uh, to earn your favor, not to earn your grace, God, but in response uh, to the favor and grace that you have shown us through Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, continue to work and to have your way with me, with my family. Uh, Continue to work and have your way with us, Lord. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.